0: Well, if you remember in our last episode in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had ascended into heaven. He promises his disciples that are there that he will return in the same way that he came. He's going to return in the clouds just like he ascended in the clouds. And it says in verse 12 of Acts 1, it says, "...then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying." And uh, recently, when our group, we took a tour to Israel, uh, we went to the place that they think was very close to where the upper room was, or could have been the upper room. But here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Judas had bought a field, and with the money he received for his treachery, and falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. Verse 19, the news of his death, of Judas' death, spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Akeldama, which means the field of blood. Peter continued, verse 20, This was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. So Peter is discerning that this is a prophecy in the Old Testament that refers to Judas. Verse 21, he says, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with Jesus, from the time he was baptized by John until the time he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace uh, Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected, To become an apostle with the other 11. So let's break this down and then we're going to talk about what happens on the day of Pentecost. It says the followers of Jesus were waiting in an upper room. Apparently, this was a room they had rented, a room that uh, they were meeting in. And uh, we're also uh, told probably many. Uh, Many theologians say that they went to the temple at various times to pray as well, so we're not exactly sure when the Holy Spirit comes, whether they're in this room or whether they're uh, in in the temple. Jesus promised them that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He said, don't leave Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. They number about 120 people. Who are these people? Well, this includes the 11 apostles. It also includes the 70, probably, that Jesus had sent out two by two. If you remember, Jesus had very distinct groups of people that he related to uh, at different levels of uh, intimacy. And, of course, along, and this is often forgotten, along with the men were many women uh, that had been followers and supporters of Jesus. And this is something that's often overlooked. Luke uh, talks about this in Luke 8, 1. It says, soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his twelve disciples along with him, along with some of the women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. So don't forget the women. These women actually were part of a critical support team uh, that supported Jesus in his ministry, that financially supported him, and supported their uh, whole group as they traveled. And uh, this is the group that makes up that 120 Luke tells us that what was going on during this time, these 10 days between the ascension of Jesus and the time the Holy Spirit falls, it says they all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and several other women and the brothers of Jesus. The apostles also felt it was important to replace Judas, they had had 12 that Jesus appointed, and they felt strongly that there needed to be 12 witnesses of everything that Jesus had done from the baptism of John till the time he ascended into heaven. And uh, it says they chose two uh, leaders among them who had witnessed all of this, Joseph and Matthias, and then they cast lots. Some, some of you are saying, what is this whole thing with the lots? Well, the lots were either sticks or they were bones or whatever. They had markings on them. Uh, They were thrown, uh, and uh, they were read, they were interpreted. Uh, Let me read this out of Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry about casting lots. It says, casting lots was a method used by the Jews of the Old Testament and by the Christian disciples prior to Pentecost to determine the will of God. Lots could be sticks with markings or stones with symbols, which were thrown into a small area, and the result was interpreted. The lot is cast into the lap, Proverbs 16.33 says, but every decision is from the Lord. It's interesting to note from Acts 1 on, they never cast lots again. From that point on, they listen to the Holy Spirit. They pray and they hear. So that was a kind of the last uh, of the old covenant, the last of the Jewish covenant and practice that becomes changed with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. This is where I want to go today, and we're going to spend several weeks looking at this, but I want to start today. It says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then we looked what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages, and there are at least 15 different, maybe 17 different groups of languages here. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and it goes on with all these different countries. If you look at the map, it was that whole surrounding area of the Middle East and near Asia that uh, was represented. Cretans, Arabs, we all hear these people speaking in our own languages. What were they saying? It says it right here. They were speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They were giving thanks to God and praising God in a new language. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? Some of you are asking that right now. What does this all mean? It's a good question to ask. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. And every time I see people drunk, they usually speak intelligent languages that they've never learned. So the funny thing is that, uh, thank you for laughing, it's good to have some interaction here. (laughs) But the interesting thing is when people don't understand something, what do they do? Or when they're uncomfortable about something, we often mock it, don't we? And that's kind of a sad response because the Holy Spirit is doing something authentic and powerful here. So Peter stands up. Now remember, this is the guy that betrayed Jesus and was afraid to take a stand. Now he's filled with boldness. It's a new day. The Holy Spirit working in the heart of Peter transforms him. He's a different person. Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, Fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people aren't drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. So Peter gives us a prophetic insight from the uh, Jewish scriptures about what's happening in this moment. Verse 17, he's quoting Joel here. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit on, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will all prophesy. And I will cause wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amazing story, isn't it? Last night when we were on the trail, we were standing there talking and all of a sudden out of nowhere this wind about 20, 25 miles an hour just came and I said this is this is fitting. I'm preaching on this tomorrow. All of a sudden this wind came out of nowhere and just kicked everything up. And uh, they probably, the people that were there, didn't have words to describe. The closest thing that they could understand were the natural elements that were so amazing, wind and fire, uh, to to explain what's happening. We are uh, reading a book right now, our leadership team and some of the home group leaders. And by the way, in the next week or so, uh, you will be getting an invitation. Uh, We're going to start meeting in home groups, and uh, we'll tell you about that. But we're reading a book called Letters to the Church by Francis Chan, uh, an excellent book. And uh, if you would like a copy of this, raise your hand. I see those hands. We'll get some copies of the book for you. By the way, Phil and Brenda, you asked if I could see you. I can see you. I know you're watching today. So, But Francis Chan, uh, several years ago, wrote uh, another book called The Forgotten God. And I just want to read this before we start talking about what does this mean? What does this outpouring of the Holy Spirit mean? What did it mean to them then, and what does it mean to us today? Francis Chan, just to give you a little background, is an evangelical pastor. He doesn't come from a charismatic background. He doesn't come from a Pentecostal background. Uh, He would tell you that growing up, he did not believe that most of what the Holy Spirit does in the book of Acts was for the church today. Where people get that idea It's a theological construct that you can't get out of the Bible. That's my strong opinion on that. But uh, Francis Chan rocked many people in the evangelical world with his book that came out several years ago. And uh, I just want to read part of the interview that he gave with Charisma magazine because he says some things that I think need to set the attitude for our heart. I appreciate what Francis says because he's an evangelical that is now discovering the power of the Spirit. He talks more about it even in the book, Letters to, uh, to, uh, to the Church. And uh, he talks about, one thing I like that he says here is that every day we should expect the supernatural to happen. I believe that's what it's supposed to be. We need to expect the Spirit of God to do the supernatural. Coming from another direction, I was raised in a Pentecostal church, and I want to be very honest with you. Many of the things that I learned in my church, it was a good church. There were lots of great things. But there were a few people in the church that really got out of hand and almost ruined it for everybody. And what I find is there are people coming from a Pentecostal or charismatic uh, uh, direction, and you have had some really strange experiences that are not the Holy Spirit, but it was called the Holy Spirit can I just ask you to have an open heart and open mind? So Francis is coming this way, arriving at truth, and I'm coming this way saying, okay, what's really biblical? And what are those things that I experience that really aren't true? Uh, one person told me they were raised in a church where everybody could prophesy. They never weighed the word. They had mics set up so anybody could go up to the mic and people would do competing prophecies if you've ever read 1 Corinthians 14, that has nothing to do with the spirit of prophecy and what God intends for the church. So some people have been hurt by these things. So let's open our hearts today, whatever direction, whether you're coming from where Francis is or whether you're coming from uh, where I came from, and let's open our hearts. So this is what he said. He said, I received a lot of questions about why I titled my book, The Forgotten God. Some thought it was a bit extreme." I don't think so. From my perspective, the Holy Spirit is tragically neglected and for all practical purposes forgotten. That's why I have a book and film on the subject. While no evangelical would deny the Holy Spirit's existence, I'm willing to bet there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say they've experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year. Many of them do not believe they can. Perhaps we're too familiar and comfortable with the current state of the church to feel the weight of the problem. But what if you grew up on a desert island with nothing but the Bible to read? Let's stop there and think about that. What if you were reading Acts chapter 1 and 2, and you're reading the book of Acts, and you didn't have any church background, no cultural understanding or foundation, and you read that, what would you assume that Christianity was to be? What would it look like? Yeah, Okay, imagine being rescued after 20 years and then attending a typical evangelical church. Chances are you'd be shocked for a whole lot of reasons, but that's another story. Having read the scriptures outside the context of contemporary church culture, you would be convinced that the Holy Spirit is as essential to the believer's existence as air is to staying alive. You would know that the Spirit led the first Christians to do unexplainable things to live lives that didn't make sense to the culture around them, and ultimately to spread the story of God's grace around the world. There is a big gap between what we read in Scripture about the Holy Spirit and how most believers and churches operate today. In many modern churches, you would be stunned by the apparent absence of the Spirit in any manifest way. And this, I believe, is the crux of the problem. Whole denominations have been built around specific beliefs about the Holy Spirit. I know people who have lost jobs at churches and Christian colleges because of their beliefs about the Holy Spirit. Let me stop here and say, when I came to Christ as a new believer at Kent State many years ago, and I had experienced uh, the same thing that we read about in Acts chapter 2, I was in a study lounge in my residence hall, and I was just praising God, and I said, you know, I need to study, but I just love Jesus so much, and I was sitting there, and I was praising God, and next thing I knew, the presence of God, I just felt like God's presence was falling on me, and I began to speak in a new language, and I started speaking out loud before I even realized what I was doing. There were about 20 guys in the study lounge. About two minutes later, there were three guys in the study lounge. My roommate that was sitting across from me that had just accepted Christ, he started praising God out loud, and we both started laughing with the joy of the Lord. Rumors were spread around our residence hall that the Holy Joes, his name was Joe, too, We're exploring the cosmos and doing strange things in study hall. So the next night at our Bible study, instead of just having four or five guys, our room was packed with about 20 people, and they asked the same question that was asked here in Acts chapter 2. They didn't say, what meaneth this? They said, are you guys crazy? What are you doing? But we got to talk with them, and they saw it in the Bible, and many of them were Catholics, and they said, we never heard that before. This is amazing. So I have to tell you, if you have an open heart and an open mind, it's amazing what can happen. So I had this experience that Francis was saying. He says, I, let me go back to the quote here. He says, I even had a girl break up with me while I was in seminary because we believed differently about the Holy Spirit. It's not one of those issues that's easy to float over. This is especially true if you belong to a particular camp with a specific belief or bent, which is why I ask this question. Are you willing to pursue truth in the journey? Good question. To know and be known by the Holy Spirit? Do you have enough humility to be open to the possibility that you've been wrong in your understanding of the Spirit? Is it easy to get into defensive mode when you quickly disagree to turn to proof texts and learned arguments to defend what you've always believed? Rather than guarding your perspective, consider taking a fresh look at familiar passages to make sure you haven't missed something. You may end up with the same theology you've always had, but maybe you won't. Don't let your views be determined by a particular denomination or what you've been told. Within the context of relationship with other believers, seek out what God has said about his Holy Spirit. Open up your mind and life to the leading of the Spirit, regardless of what others may think or assume about you. And I want to say right now, I would rather please God than please any human being on earth. I would rather offend a person than offend God. People may say, what you believe is crazy, but I can tell you that what I believe is biblical and we have to not care what people think. So I felt it was important to read that. Can we just say with a fresh heart and an open heart, Lord, show me what we believe about the Holy Spirit. So what happened that day? Well, Pentecost didn't just come out of any, nowhere. It wasn't just a name they came up with for this event. Pentecost was a Greek name for a Hebrew event. The Hebrew name was Shavuot. It's also known as the Feast of Weeks. It was one of the three main feasts that God originally gave to the people of Israel. And He told them three times a year, I want you to gather in Jerusalem. Now, Passover was the first of those feasts. And we know that Passover was fulfilled through Jesus becoming the Lamb who was slain for us. The second feast, Shavuot, was the beginning of the wheat harvest. It also commemorated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. For the Jews, it was a celebration that God had given the Torah, the five books of the uh, Hebrew scriptures to the people of Israel. It was a great time of celebration. It's not as big a deal with modern Jewish congregations today Uh, as it was then, but we're told by uh, historians and theologians that during the feast of Shavuot, it was the largest of the feasts. There were more people in Jerusalem for that feast than any other feast, and they would come, and they would bring their sheaves of grain to offer thanks for the beginning of the harvest, and they would wave them before the Lord. They would bring their uh, sacrifices to the priest, The final feast, by the way, Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, is a feast that commemorates uh, the end of the harvest. And I believe that uh, that's going to come at the end of time when Christ returns. In Jesus' day, Shavuot was a big deal in Jerusalem. Jerusalem often swelled uh, with people from all over the world. They would travel as pilgrims to come to the temple. Many people would come because they had traveled a long way, and they would stay from Passover all the way through uh, Shavuot, and they would uh, be there in Jerusalem. It was important for the Jewish believer to be at the temple because that was the site where God's presence dwelt. That was where the Holy of Holy was. That's where uh, God's, the, the sacrifices were, were given. So, the chances are that there were people from all over the known world, and Jerusalem had swelled to ten times its normal size. It says, when the followers of Jesus were together in one place, uh, they had been obeying the command. Jesus had told them to wait. It's ten days since Jesus gave them instructions. And apparently, they had meeting together, whether they were in the upper room or in a more public place. They're evidently in a place where people could hear what was going on. It must have been fairly public because people heard what was happening and they ran to the place. They began to assemble and they said, what's going on? They knew something was happening there. So what happened when the Holy Spirit came? There was a sound like a blowing of a violent wind. It doesn't say it was a wind, but there was this rushing sound that was the closest that they could understand. And then people saw what appeared to be flames of fire. Apparently, the fire appeared, and then it separated and came to rest over each believer. Why is this important? We're going to talk about the symbol of the fire, but it's important that it came to rest over each believer. All of them, it says, were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus used the term, they're going to be baptized with the Spirit, and here he says they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea that they're totally filled to overflowing is this idea that they're they're filled up and it's just flowing out. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Uh, The King James says "As the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, These were actual languages. We have, uh, depending on how you divide it, 15 to 17 different nations and language groups that actually heard uh, the the praises of God in their own language from people that had never learned these things. Uh, Just an amazing thing. People that were in Jerusalem who spoke these languages were amazed. They heard them, and what did they hear? They heard them declaring the praises and the wonders of God. Apparently, the Holy Spirit was, through these new believers, lifting up praises to God. That's Holy Spirit-assisted praise to the Lord. What did this demonstration mean? Well, we see three signs here. We see the wind, we see the fire, and we see the tongues, the new languages. Now let's talk. We're going to break it down and talk about these three. The wind probably reminded the disciples of, of, of Jesus of, of the teaching that Jesus gave in John three, when Jesus said, "The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Holy Spirit." So there's this idea that the Holy Spirit is associated with the wind for a hebrew speaker it would have been uh, it would have made clear sense the word for holy spirit in the in the jewish scriptures is ruach hakodesh which literally means the holy wind of god the breath of god that is breathed on us The flames of fire were another sign that was very a common demonstration of God's presence throughout Israel's history. If you think about the fire of God, it's associated with what we call God's Shekinah glory, his manifest presence, his glory revealed in a very physical way. Uh, They probably thought of the pillar of fire. That appeared and led the people of Israel out of Egypt into the desert on the way to the promised land. The fire was also uh, part of the manifest presence in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Remember when the priest first dedicated the temple, it says the fire of God came and the priests could not stand for the glory of the Lord. It's interesting. There were 120 priests in Second Chronicles 5, when Solomon dedicates the temple, it said they couldn't stand because of the glory of the Lord and they fell before God. They fell over under God's power. And here in the New Testament, this new covenant, there are 120 that are there that are gathered and are filled with the power of the Spirit. And they see that same fire there was the fire of God that came to consume Elijah's sacrifice. Remember on Mount Carmel when the prophets of Baal cried all day to their false god and nothing happened, and Elijah soaked the altar with water. And uh, he said, Lord, if you be God, consume the sacrifice. And the fire of God fell and not only consumed the sacrifice, but the stones, the water, and everything around it. It was a sign to the people of uh, Israel. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the temple uh, the, in the holy of holies, the presence of God. Remember, one of the signs at Passover was the curtain of the temple was broken. That holy fire, that holy presence of God was now released because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he became our sacrifice lamb to be released in the earth. So the good news is that God's presence would now dwell with his people. For the Jews of the first century, this was an awesome thought, They truly were the living temple of the Holy Spirit. The fact that the fire appeared and then went to rest over each believer meant that they were a living temple of God, that they were connected, but each one of them was indwelt with that fire. Each one of them had the Shekinah presence of God. That same presence that was in the Holy of Holies now was in the hearts of every man and woman that was there that day. It was a sign to them that there would no longer be any building that would contain the presence of God. There would no longer be any barrier between God and his people. He had made the way through the past over lamb, Jesus Christ, and now the presence of God was released in the earth. This is so amazing. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people say, now wait a minute, weren't they already believers? Didn't the Spirit already dwell in them? Yeah, I believe he did. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. Jesus even says in John 20, this is before Jesus ascended, John 20, 21, Jesus said to them, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you hold, withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I believe that they were already saved. I believe that the Holy Spirit dwelt in them. So what was happening here in Acts chapter 2 was an anointing of God's power. And scripture tells us, there's even a command, Paul tells us in Ephesians, he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's in the aorist tense in Greece, it's the present continuous tense that says, be being filled, be always filled with the Holy Spirit. Now why would God say, be always filled with the Holy Spirit, as if we had something to do with it? The Spirit of God lives in us, it's salvation, but we can determine how full we are of God's anointing power. And that's why he says every day, you need to go back into my presence and be filled again to be renewed. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave us, but we just need more of his anointing for every day. It's the power, like it says in Acts 1, it's the power to be a witness, not just to speak words, but to live the life. It's the power to be everything God has commanded us to be. And we are commanded always to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is uh, not the indwelling presence of God, it's salvation, but it's an anointing of power to live the life that God has called us to live. Can I tell you that a good portion of the church today, I believe no Holy Spirit as the saving agent in their life, but they've never experienced God's power. And I would say to you, if you're out there and you've never experienced this power, if you've been lied to, and it is a lie, and you say these are pretty strong words, when people start trying to explain away one of the members of the Godhead, that really concerns me as a pastor. He's not an impersonal force. He is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, it's better for you that I go away because if I go away, then the Spirit can come. Jesus could only relate to 12 intimate disciples in a very intimate and powerful way. But after he left and the Spirit of God came to live in them, all of the teachings of Jesus, all of the mind of Christ, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, was released to these people. Now God was resident in the heart of each person. Jesus had Pave the way, but all of a sudden we go from 12 to 120 believers to at the end of the day of Pentecost, 3,000 believers, and they all look like Jesus. They're all walking in the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. They're praying for the sick and the sick are being healed. They're getting words of knowledge, like Ananias, who gets a word Hey, there's this guy named Saul, and he's over three streets. You need to go find him and prophesy over him and tell him what my work is for him. He was just a guy. Ananias was just a guy, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's this partnership with God that most of the church has not really attached to and understood. And I have to tell you that that robbery, I think, is one of the strategies of Satan. Let me tell you a secret. A number of years ago, Janice and I went to Central America as missionaries, and we spent a year in Costa Rica in the language institute there, um, it was the Spanish language institute, and we studied Spanish. And we had amazing times with our friends down there. There were Baptists; they were the largest group in the in the school. were Baptists. There were Presbyterians. There were people from the Assembly of God, and all these different denominations. And we made a lot of Baptist friends down there. And they would come up to us and they say, "Hey, I want you to know something. I speak in tongues. I believe in the Holy Spirit." I said, why are you telling me this? They said, because if they find out at home, I'm going to be in trouble. I said, well, why don't you just tell them? And I found out all these Baptists had received the power of the Spirit. And, and, and again and again, I heard the same thing. We can't do the ministry of Christ. We can't even survive in this spiritual environment of Central America unless we have the power of the Holy Spirit. They said, we just opened up and it happened. So I said, okay, you're one of us. It's okay. I read an article later that uh, about 60% of Baptist missionaries had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, if you go around the world to the church in different places, the growth of the church that has happened since the year 1900, 1906, when uh, Azusa Street, when the outpouring of the Spirit came, the growth of the church has been more than exponential. In almost every land where the, the growth has been exponential, they are people that are open fully to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I, became, uh, I was chosen as a chaplain while I was down there at the language school, uh, for a semester. We, each one served for a semester, so I was elected to that. And um, we had a group coming in. Uh, it was Latin American Mission. They were traditionally an uh, evangelical group that was not necessarily open to the Holy Spirit. And uh, the director of the Language Institute said, now, Joe, I know that you're one of those Pentecostal guys, and I know you love the Holy Spirit, but you can't push your agenda on people. Now, this group, this from Latin American Mission, had been invited in before we got there, and uh, by the previous group, they had planned it a year before, and when these guys showed up to do the chapel that day, they said, uh, we've got to talk to you because the power of the Holy Spirit is falling on us, and we are now operating in the things of the Spirit. They were getting words of wisdom and words of knowledge, stuff like this, where the Lord would speak to their people and say, there's a drug dealer on the eighth floor, he's desperate, You need to go, and this is his room number. That's the kind of Holy Spirit intelligence that the missionaries were getting down there. And when they started sharing, Don Lorenzo, the uh, head of the Language Institute, looked at me, and I said, I had nothing to do with it. The group last year picked these people to speak, and they talked about how their ministry had been transformed because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were now doing things just like the book of Acts, Folks, we're in Acts 20.20. We're in chapter 20.20 of the book of Acts. The story of the Holy Spirit goes on, and I'm way off my notes. Sorry about that. No, I'm not sorry about that. I'm having fun. So we need to, we need to press into everything that God has given us. Listen to Ephesians 5.17. It says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Being filled with the Spirit is always connected with praise and worship. Because what is the work of the Holy Spirit? It's to release our hearts to praise God and to connect to God. Those two go together. I have people say, well, I want God to baptize me in the Holy Spirit. You want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Start praising God and open your heart up to him. Praise and worship is a pathway into God's presence. Uh, That's why he says in Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It's always been the way into the presence of God. Paul is saying here, he says, you can have too much wine, really quick. You drink a little bit of wine, and there's this point where you go over that, and you, you're drunk. You, you've lost your senses. You've lost your ability to judge properly. But he says you can never have too much of the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, full to overclone. Let me just close with this, and then we'll pick up next uh, week on this. The indwelling presence of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in his church is core to all Christian theology. False religion always relies on sacred space and sacred time. Let me explain that. Sacred space and sacred time, and by the way, I believe in consecrated space. This building that we have is consecrated to the Lord, but it's not sacred. What I mean by that is when you all leave, the Holy Spirit goes with you. He does not stay in the building, Okay? But this is a building that's consecrated to the Lord. I hope, I hope you under, see, see the difference there, understand the difference. But when we understand that God doesn't dwell in a temple made by human hands, and that the presence of God is upon us and in us to accomplish his purpose wherever we go as the church of the living God, it has to change the way that we look. I've shared this story many times before, but I felt like I needed to share it again today. When I was... Um, About uh, 12 years old, I was in sixth grade, my Sunday school teacher, a great guy, uh, he shared with us, he said, now what I want you guys to do is pretend like wherever you go, Jesus is right there with you. You thought, well, that's that's a cool thing to tell somebody, but you want to know something that's bad theology, because the matter of fact is, once you receive the Lord and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes with you wherever you go. He is a partner with you, and this is why we walk, whole, we live holy and godly lives, the Holy Spirit leading us, teaching us to do that. I love what it says in Thessalonians that the Spirit of grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's because the Holy Spirit lives in us. When you begin to realize that wherever I go, whatever I do, when I'm with other people, how do I treat them? When I go to experience things in my life, if I go to a movie, the Lord is right there with me. If I'm in a business deal, the Lord is right there with me. That makes me a lot less willing to cheat somebody at business if I know the Spirit of God lives in me. This is what Jesus was trying to get across in Matthew 5 when he said in the old scriptures, I told you in the Jewish scriptures, it's said that if you commit adultery, it's sin. Now I tell you if you have adulterous thoughts. Why is that an issue? Because now you're the temple and the Holy Spirit's living in you. You're in covenant with him. There's a higher bar that you can't reach yourself. It's the spirit of God living in you, changing you, transforming you. If this doesn't change our behavior and perspective, then there's something wrong. Now, folks, I want to tell you this, and this is what we're going to end with. A lot of people that say they're Christians today believe that God lives in a building. They believe that they can do things in their home and their business that they would never do in a church building. That's hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, it's bad theology because God sees you wherever you are. He sees you, whatever is happening. He's right there with you. The good news is, even though he sees all of us and he knows everything we do, he loves us more than we can imagine. And that's the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit. He is not out to condemn us. He wants us to conform to the truth and to the obedience that we should be walking in in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we hear what the Lord is saying to us? What happened on this day was not just an empowerment to live and walk like Jesus. This was the birth of the church. This was the church that was being filled to be deployed. We're going to pick up next week and we'll talk about speaking in tongues and we'll talk about what that means and uh, what Peter meant when he references Joel chapter 2. But what I would like to ask of all of us today as I prayed this week, this is what I really felt we needed to pray about. Now, I'm going to invite uh, some people to come and join me up here to pray. Uh, Dion and Hannah, if you would come. For some of us, we know these things, but it's been a while since God filled us with his spirit in a new and fresh way. Would you open your heart to him? And I had a picture last night As I was praying and getting ready for today, and I felt like I needed to say that some of you, the Lord is saying, kneel down right where you are, that you need to take time, just honor God's presence, kneel down. He's right there with you. And you need to say, Holy Spirit, I want to open my heart to all that you have. I want to open my heart and spirit to you to receive you and all that you want to do in me. I want to be your living temple. I want to be filled anew with the power and presence of your spirit. For others, maybe you've never experienced this before. I know uh, when I was a young Christian, and I'll talk more about this next week, sometimes people get caught up, do I have to speak in tongues? Don't even worry about that now. What I want you to do is just say, Lord, I want everything you have for me. Can you say that to the Lord right now? God, I don't want to hold back anything. I just want to yield myself to you, and I want to surrender to you. I want everything that you have would you just come and fill right now? And we're going to take a moment to pray and response. I've asked Dion and Hannah to join me. But Lord, just give us prayers now. Give us specific prayers for people that are watching today.
1: I just want to echo what Pastor Joe was saying. I just get this picture of, of someone holding out their hands to receive. Like this is a good father. And as you open up your hands, he will fill. Like your responsibility is just to be open to what the Father has for you, and He's not going to hold back. Um, I'm getting the sense that there are some people who are afraid because they don't know what to expect. Um, and I just want to say this isn't something that you need to be afraid of. Um, just uh, kind of a a testimony about how I experienced it. because i I used to be afraid too. Um, you know I this is one of those situations where a lot of people get hurt by this topic, but um, I knew that in order to be empowered for ministry, that this was something that I needed. Um, and so there was one morning i was I was just sitting down with God and I was praying um, and I said, "God, I just want you." I want more of you and I, I want what you have for me. And all of a sudden it it felt like there was warm oil just being poured over my head and it just started to slowly drip down and I could feel the presence of God so strongly and it was so peaceful and, and amazing. Um, and immediately I heard this Voice telling me, it's not real, it's all in your head, it's it's fake. And I could immediately recognize it as the voice of the enemy. And um, God was able to give me that discernment um, through his Holy Spirit. And I was able to rebuke that spirit. Um, And I was just able to praise God, and it was amazing. And so, um, God, right now, I just want to pray for all of the people who are Um, experiencing that spirit of fear or that that spirit of doubt. God, please break that spirit. Um, God, just be with those people. Give them your peace.
0: I I just had a picture of a woman that, while I was speaking, you didn't say this out loud, but you kind of laughed in your heart, kind of like Sarah did in the Old Testament. And what you said is, I can be used to lay hands on the sick and see them healed. I can do the things that Jesus did. And the Lord is saying, yes, and he wants you to do that. I'm getting the impression it may not even be somebody that attends River of Life, but you're watching this. And the Lord is saying, yes, daughter, I want you to partner with me and allow me to work through you. God wants to impart gifts. We'll talk more about those gifts in days to come, but God wants to use you. Just surrender to him. Let him work out the theology in the days to come. Right now, the Lord is just asking for an open heart. Father, we love you so much. Lord, I'm just thinking of the scripture that Jesus says, if we ask for a fish, will he give us a snake? And if we're good fathers, we would never do that to our children. How much better are you, Heavenly Father? Lord, as we go through this season talking about your Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would open our hearts to receive more of you. Because if there's more of you in us, there's going to be more of you in the world. And the people around us are going to be changed and transformed by your love and by your power. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goes with the anointing of the Spirit, all the gifts of power. Lord, I pray that they would just be restored to the church. Lord, if any of us have heard teaching that's contrary to that, just open our hearts and minds. Set our hearts free from anything that would block the good things that you have for your children. Father, just be blessed, we pray. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.